Well, at this time, I want to invite you all to turn in your Bibles or to open up your devices to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 2. And as you're turning there, uh, at various times, God's people have lived in a state of being scattered. And Isaiah's time was one such time. But God has a promise to the people who are scattered and who feel disconnected. And so let's listen to what the Lord says to us in Isaiah chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 1 or yeah, verses 1 through 5 of Isaiah chapter 2. This is the word of the Lord. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. few months ago, I had a friend come over to the house and cut down some trees in my backyard as well as trim some trees in the front yard. He is an arborist, so he knows his stuff when it comes to trees. And I asked him what he thought about our two big trees in the front yard. We have a river birch that's big, but it looks pretty ratty, to be honest with you. Uh, And I have a maple that had something growing on it that I wasn't clear about. And what he told me became a tale of two trees. Even though I I thought this river birch was not looking too good and looking pretty ratty, he actually said it was a super healthy tree that was so strong that a hurricane-like storm, if it were to come through, couldn't even blow it down. It would be that strong of a tree in the process. He said a little trimming would do and make it just like new. However, the other tree was a very different story. Uh, apparently, uh, the issue with the maple tree was that was something about the trunk of the tree. Uh, apparently, I didn't realize this, there are actually two trees growing there. And there are two different maple trees growing in that same trunk, and they're competing to be the stronger tree. Sure enough, when I looked at the tree with them, that was, a, that was the case. It is growing apart in a kind of division And he said in time what would happen is they would compete to the point where one tree would actually break off. So I had one strong tree that was unified in its trunk and the other tree that was divided. And I thought, you know, isn't that a word picture of our culture? Isn't that a word picture of so many things that are going on today in our world where we've got 
communities that are struggling either to become one strong tree or some communities or contexts of relationships where they are competing trunks growing apart. Today we're going to take a little break from our Philippians series and we're going to talk about the strength of the tree here at South Charlotte and really as the church as a whole. And we're going to talk about it in a context of what we've already looked at, even in Philippians, the idea of unity and community, and how we as a community, as we come out of COVID, slowly but surely, uh, can re-enter relationships and even mission together. Indeed, the Reconnect series that we're going to do over these next few weeks is intended to help us re-engage with each other and our neighbors in a unity and community focused on Christ especially after a very long year of COVID. Now, there is no doubt that relationships on every level, including church, have taken a hit in the last year. I'm sure if I polled all of you here today, you'd say, yeah, in some place, some sphere of life, relationships have taken us a significant hit. Now, with the recent lifting of social distancing and and the mask mandate, yay, happy day, uh, with spring, and with springtime happening, most of us here are probably re-engaging to some degree with people in community, and uh, it is a relief to us. But let's not miss something. The issue in the last year wasn't just COVID. The issue in the last year was a lot of division in our culture, a lot of division. It's been a whammy of divisiveness, if you will, with uh, politics, culture wars, and even how to handle the pandemic. We're coming out of our isolation into a different world right now. And, and in this different world, here's what's happened. Our differences seem way, way bigger than they were even a year or so ago. So how do we as a church, how do people as a part of the kingdom, followers of Jesus, really seek to go a different way with this? How do we in our families, companies, nations, and yes, again, even here in our church, overcome the challenge of the story of the two trees. Well, Christianity is all about us coming together in mission, and Isaiah 2 lays out a picture of what God's been doing in history with his people to regather us in community. So kind of our two big questions today will be this, what is God doing to gather very different people together into the strong tree of his church. And practically speaking, how do very different people who have a penchant to isolate or even militate get together in God's church? Now, you can see the outline on our screens or, or online if you're watching uh, let's dive into Isaiah and get to these real questions of what God is up to to bring very different people together in him. So Isaiah was written in uh, uh, the, uh, the 8th century B.C., and it was written, uh, Isaiah wrote in a culture that was full of all kinds of trouble and division. Um, uh, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel had already divided hundreds of years earlier, and a superpower was looming over this little country of Judah and Israel to the north called Assyria. 
And they were throwing their weight around because they wanted to insert themselves in all the world politics. They, they wanted to take over the world as a nation in that time. There were also not only these external challenges, but there were also internal troubles for Judah and Jerusalem with corruption and even idolatry, people running from God to other gods. From all intents and purposes, Isaiah's looking at a nation that looked like it was falling apart. But then Isaiah says this in verse 2. Look at what he says in verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Sometime in the future, relative to Isaiah, the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established. Now, latter days, uh, if you look at that little phrase in Scripture, usually is an allusion to that time between Christ's first and second coming. If you do a little word study of the last days, you'll find that even in the New Testament. That's our time. That's our time that we live in. He goes on to talk about, though, the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, that's a technical term to describe the temple on Mount Zion. If you were living Isaiah's time, you would have heard that phrase and thought, oh, that's the temple on Mount Zion right in Jerusalem. Now, the Lord says that the temple would be established, meaning it would have a permanent duration. It would be established once and for all. Not only that, the Lord promises that as this mountain of the Lord would be lifted higher than all the other hills and that God and his kingdom in that temple would be raised infinitely higher than all the kings and kingdoms and idols and gods around. In other words, it would be the supreme kingdom. The king of kings and the kingdom of kingdoms would be there. Now, what's interesting about Isaiah writing this is he's writing this during a challenging time. He's writing during political upheaval. Assyria was, uh, was mowing down cities and even threatening to take over Jerusalem with a siege. Zion wasn't even close to being the highest hill of all the hills. Yet the Lord makes this promise that the mountain of the house of the Lord would be there forever and would end up being the supreme kingdom. And this is what the Lord does. This is what the Lord does. He makes promises that defy human power and what we see. Even crazier, the Lord promises that all the nations, very different people from very different places, will come to the mountain of the Lord. You saw that in verse, the end of verse 2. It talks about all the nations shall flow to it. And then in verse 3, many people shall come and say... And they're all coming to the Lord to bow before Him and to worship Him. Instead of coming to the mountain with power plays or even war, people are coming together around the Lord to worship Him. You see, what's happening here is this. Apparently, the Lord is putting together a people who are both a unity and a diversity both a unity and a diversity. Not just a unity of one group with a little tribe, nor is it glorifying diversity by itself. It's both. And among men, 
the Scriptures are saying that among men of people of so many differences, the only place we can find true unity and diversity at the same time is when the Lord puts that group together. Now, what's this 8th century prophecy got to do with you and me today? Well, what's interesting is this. The temple that he's talking about, the house, the mountain of the Lord with the house of the Lord here, doesn't exist anymore. It was raised to the ground in 586 B.C., and then again a second temple was raised to the ground in 70 A.D. So that begs the question. If you're going to the mountain of the house of the Lord, and it's supposed to be this supreme kingdom with the supreme king, the lasting center where people come together, where is it? Where is it? Well, the answer comes in John chapter 2. When in John 2, Jesus says something really important about himself. He says, tear down this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. You see that? Jesus is calling himself the ultimate temple. He's the temple. He's the one that people come to. He's the one king and temple who people gather around. Jesus is the center of real, eternal community where authentic unity and diversity are held together in the power of the Holy Spirit. Even more, in John chapter 4, Worship, Jesus tells us that worship isn't confined to one place on a mountain in Jerusalem anymore. The place where people come to Jesus is where he is lifted up in the gospel, the church. The new mountain of the house of the Lord is the church. The new temple where the Holy Spirit dwells and gathers people to Jesus is the church. In fact, 1 Peter 2 says... We are living stones built up as a spiritual house. That's what we are as God's people. Now, what has the unity and diversity of people coming around Christ and into the church got to do with us in a practical sense? Well, here it is, guys. You ready for this? You all think you came to church today and you chose to come to church. You all think, in some cases, if you're members of South Charlotte, you chose to join South Charlotte. And I tell you, yes, you did that. But don't miss the larger point of this text. God called you first. God moved in your heart first. He's the one who brought you together. God is the sovereign who brings us into the body. This is one of the biggest lessons I've ever had in planting churches. I've had the privilege of planting two churches. When you set out to plant a church, you usually come up with a vision of what you're going to do, and that's a good thing. You also come up with a, a plan on kind of your target people you're typically going to target. And i got to tell you guys, I love God so much because every time I come up with a target, God just throws it off completely when, when, the, when the church gets going. Different people show up than I anticipate every time because I have such a small view of who would actually show up. And that's the blessing of actually being a part of God's kingdom that I have enjoyed is how he has surprised me over and again with different people from different nations, different tribes, different angles that I never would have expected showing up at the church. The thing I would highlight here is this. Don't miss that God put the person next to you 
in your chairs, in this congregation, even other Christians in other churches, he put them there with you. You didn't put yourself there. He called you first. He's the one who's putting his church together as this magnificent text is showing us. Now, how did that happen? You know what one of the interesting things about this text is? In verse 2, it says this. It says, all the nations shall flow to it. That is the mountains. That word for flow is the language of water flowing. But don't forget, it's going up a mountain, water flowing up a mountain. Some commentators rightly say, I think, the image here is there's a supernatural thing happening, water flowing uphill, and that God is drawing us together supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural community. So when you look at each other, remember, God put us here to bond us in the power and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And even more, I want to highlight this again. God puts really different people together. Verse 2 and 3 highlight all nations and many peoples. Now, we're blessed at South Shaw to already have different nations coming here, people from different countries. It's a beautiful thing. But you've got to understand there are very different cultures coming together here, very different emphases in life. And what's happening is this. In the church, God is doing a reversal of the Tower of Babel. Remember when the people of the Tower of Babel, all the people of the world came together to build this great uh, thing to the sky to get glory for themselves and to reach up to the gods, and God just scattered them with different languages and therefore different cultures. But what God is doing in the church is he's reversing Babel, and he's drawn different people from tongues, tribes, and nations, different personalities, different emphases in life. God is the one who is showing in his supernatural way that he's the only one who can make a unity and diversity work together among us. So, this is the diversity that we're in today. We're with people who are very different political parties, policy hawks, you name it. But God put us together. Now, you got to know something. I grew up, as is pretty obvious, a middle-class white southern boy. But since I became a Christian, I have experienced and enjoyed relationships with different nationalities uh, and different people and races even that were transcendent. I grew up in a racist family. I had my own racist tendencies before I became a Christian. And then Jesus changed me and changed my own understanding of it. And you know how much he blessed me? He gave me the privilege of pastoring a bunch of Hispanics and African-Americans in my last church. And you want to know something to change your heart? It's nothing like doing life together and Jesus bringing that healing to you when you actually get to be a part of the redemption and are redeemed yourself and your own assumptions about people. The thing that happens when different people get together is this. You have to grow. That's what I learned. You're forced to grow. And most people resist being around people of holy differences, and I'm going to highlight that, holy differences, because they don't want to grow. 
the real art, the real spirituality of following Jesus is he's going to force you to change and grow as you're around people who are very different than you. Back in March, the strategic command that safeguards the United States' nuclear weapons had a scare. The Twitter account that puts out information about our nuclear arsenal and status and all that suddenly one day had gibberish being posted on it. Those who kept up with it were alarmed. People were thinking, well, wait a minute now. If somebody's hacked into the, uh, the Twitter account for our national arsenal of nuclear weapons, does that mean they're actually getting into our system? Happily, before people pushed the panic button, the Twitter account let everyone know that a child of the Twitter account manager had actually been playing on the keyboard, typing gibberish while the guy apparently walked away from the keyboard. Instead of a nefarious hack uh, of a foreign nation, it was actually this child. But the information was this. It was childish gibberish. Childish gibberish. Guys, we live in a world full of childish gibberish that gets in the way of our community, that gets in the way of relationships. So here's a question. How in the world can people who have all this information coming at us, who have different angles on different things in life, even different cultures, come together? Look at verse 3 with me. It says this, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may reach, he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The short answer of how we get through the cultural gibberish that actually separates us is we come to Christ and his gospel word. Notice how people have come from all over the place to learn and hear from the word of the Lord. The gospel speaks into our situations, even our conflicts. Now, here's an interesting thing. I read this article by David Mathis this week that made a great observation, a keen observation that basically all of Scripture, from Moses to David to Paul to the gospels, everything, the prophets especially, were written in conflict. You ever thought of that? They were written in conflict. And so what that means is this. We have a Christ who speaks to us with hope and with truth whenever we face issues that seem to separate us. Did you notice that in our text that there's something else that drew the people together? It says and describes God's people and particularly God, as the God of Jacob. Anytime God describes himself as the God of, you go back and look at the story of Jacob. And the story of Jacob wasn't pretty. He was a liar. He was a cheat. He left dead bodies in his wake from conflict. He was a sinner. Do you know where a good place to start is for us as a community? is to remember that we are all sinners first. Sinners in need of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. We have that in common. 
for sure. And that, the beauty of the gospel is that Christ has and is rescuing us from our sin to live a very different life of love. Now, there's something else I want to highlight here in this verse as well. Why are so many people coming to the Lord to hear His Word in this new way of life? You know, it's like people coming from all over the world. It's just amazing vision that's happening, and it, and it is played out in the church. Well, the, clearly the text says they were ready to go God's way and walk the narrow path of Christ. They wanted to follow the Lord, but there's a reason. The reason was they were tired and dissatisfied with their old way of life. They wanted to have a break with their tiny gods and with their broken way of living and relationships. Pay attention to your dissatisfied heart. Pay attention to your dissatisfied heart coming out of COVID in particular. It can be a pointer to something you need from the Lord. It's a pointer to say, look to Jesus for the life you need in the truth. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ today, or if you're just visiting for a first time, we're glad you're here. My question to you would be this. What do you do with your dissatisfaction? When life isn't going your way and you're thinking, I need a new way, what do you do with that dissatisfaction? I exhort you to consider coming to Christ, who will not only rescue from the old, you from the old way, but will show you a new way, and he'll put you in a church where there are fellow people who are dissatisfied and are learning how to handle it in him. That's what makes us unique. Now, we come to the point where we ask, what's this got to do with us as a church in the coming years, in the coming month? Well, in verse uh, 3, I would highlight at the beginning, it says this interesting thing. Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Did you notice that? That somebody is inviting other people to come? This is a call to share our faith. A share our faith and a call to hospitality to enter in each other's lives. A guy named Robert Putnam talks about it this way. He talks about how really building community shows up in two things. It's bridging and it's bonding. And in, in the Christian church, bridging would be outreach for us. Bonding would be building that deep relationship with people over time. Bridging looks like, us, looks like this for us in the church in the next year. We're going to do more outreaches, and we're going to start by just hanging out. That's right. Just hanging out in gatherings and homes here at the church, right after church is a great example. There are other things we'll be doing just so we can get together as a body. We want you to invite your friends, because I can bet you that as other people, even unchurched, are coming out of COVID, the depth of loneliness after a year of isolation, the sense of disconnectedness is very real for many people. But there's also the bonding piece. The bonding piece is where you find context where you grow in relationship with people, where you do the business of hanging out with each other. And that is in, the, that in our church is what we call uh, life groups, is what we call uh, um, uh, prayer triads, and we even have different versions of discipleship groups. 
I encourage you to find ways to be intentional the next year to reconnect with people and build relationships. And, and these are some of the contexts you can do that. And more importantly, go to the heart. Look, at church, we all just tell each other, hi, how are you, right? But the real question of community is this, hi, who are you? What's your story? That's the kind of relationships we want to enter in at South Charlotte Prez together. So, Christ connects us together. He calls us to a life of bridging and bonding. But there's one last thing he does in our text I will highlight as we finish up here. In verse 4 it says this, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Remember, these are people who have very different politics coming together, very different worldviews, very different ethnic angles in life, and God brings them together. And here's what he does. He teaches them how to do life together. If you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to learn or relearn how to love we, if we go out of our natural sense of what love is, usually ends up making a mess. And I'm just speaking as a middle-aged man who's done that myself. But if you come to Christ, he will teach you a new way of love. And the way of love even shows up in conflict. Did you notice how he says you beat swords into plowshares? Normally, when people get together, we end up making a mess with each other. But Jesus teaches us how to actually be harvesting righteousness, even harvesting by reaching out to people in the lost. That's what Jesus teaches us to do as we come around him. And this is one of the big challenges in our time, coming out of all that's happened the last year, and really re-engaging is finding out that God can overcome our deepest struggles with each other sometimes. You see, whenever you get in relationship with each other, you're going to bump into each other. You're going to bump into me. I'm going to bump into you. And what are we going to do about that when that happens? We're going to go to Jesus, and he's going to teach us how to handle that in a peacemaking way, in a godly way. Maybe most of you today don't come with any kind of gripe on your mind or any complaint or, frankly, any kind of conflict going in your life, but I would bet some are. And I would tell you that Christ is calling you to engage with him in some way, to calm your heart and bring peace to you through the Spirit. And most of all, he will show you how the cross frees you to not only receive forgiveness, but also give it away. Ask Joe Avila. Back in 1992, Joe Avila was driving his car while he was drunk. He hit Amy Wall in her car and killed her. Avila, of course, was arrested, prosecuted. For a time, he went through a recovery program in the Salvation Army and then went to jail for a while, got involved with prison fellowship. Avila, in that time, really saw the depth of what he had done and how dark it was, and he showed all the great signs of repentance. When he got out, he didn't know how people would respond to him. 
And so when he got out, he wondered how he would even engage church because he was a part of a church. You know what his church did? When he finally got home and decided to show up at church one night, they had big signs out front with Welcome Home Joe with big uh, yellow, yellow ribbons around the trees as if welcoming him home from a battle. Not only that, after that, Joe got a phone call. And he got a phone call from Amy Wall's brother. Amy Wall's brother had heard that he had been growing and changing and said, I want to talk to you. And so they sat down and he said, dude, I got to tell you, I thought you were a monster when you killed my sister. But I've been praying for you, and I want to be in reconciliation with you. Joe Avila was overwhelmed with this, but it didn't stop there. Then Amy Wall's father wanted to meet with him. Amy Wall's father said, hey, I'm, I want to reconcile with you as well. And Joe sat down and did the hard work of listening and they worked out their relationship. And then Amy Wall's mother wanted to meet with him and said, would you please watch a video about Amy just so you can get to know him? And it was painful for him to watch it, but he watched it, and he sat down with the mother. They reconciled. Pretty soon, Joe was a part of the Wall family. And the amazing thing was, Christ is the one who healed them and taught them to do something that you just don't see much in American culture in itself. He taught them forgiveness. He taught them grace, how to beat their, their, uh, their swords into plowshares. I exhort you today, as we move forward as a church, as a church that actually has a lot of peace right now, let's pay attention to what God's doing, and even when we need to, beat our swords into plowshares for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have brought us together as a body, and I thank you, Lord, that indeed we as a church have a lot of peace, and we're looking forward to hanging out together after even worship today. But I pray that as we think about this important text, we would see how you change us into peacemaking people. You bring us together supernaturally, and you even intend that we bump into each other so that we would grow in holiness and get a bigger picture of who you are. I pray, Lord, that as we grow as a body, that as different people, we discover there's a unity, a strong tree that begins with the roots of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name. Amen.